Christ. Yeah, yeah, we're working through a couple New Testament letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And we're calling it Messy Church because Paul's writing to a church that's kind of a mess. And if you've ever been a part of a church, you know that it's just a mess. Every church I've ever been a part of is always a mess because it's made up of people, and people are messy, and that's okay. That's just part of it. And so we're going to take a little detour, just a quick one, before we get back into 1 Corinthians next week to kind of land the plane, if you will, in the right runway of one of the things that we've talked about over the last four or five weeks about, well, the first mess that Paul addresses for the Corinthian church. But when we come back to 1 Corinthians next week, we'll be talking about the next thing. Paul gets into a lot of this. So we'll just, you know, I, mean, I would never use sensationalism to increase the church attendance or anything like that at all. But that's where we'll be next week, sex and marriage and all that stuff. So, now, before we jump into this, let me just ask you, this week, when have you experienced some, some friction, some difficulty? This week, did you witness, or maybe you were a part of somebody who wanted their way, or maybe you felt like you were set aside or offended or disregarded, and it rose up some feelings of selfishness, maybe selfish ambition in you? All of this that we experience, whether it's in a coffee shop or at work, wherever we are, we find ourselves experiencing this, this problem, the trouble that Paul began addressing in the very beginning of the letter to the Corinthian church. And he addresses this issue of not getting along with other people because it's universal. And it really, of course, is the root of almost every problem we'll be into through both letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. When Paul calls it out, he calls it quarreling. So just to remind you where we've been, my brothers and sisters, he says, we're getting, I'm writing to you because you've been quarreling and your fights are causing divisions among you. Paul even gets into the reason for it. He says that some of you have become, what's the word? Arrogant. Can you imagine somebody being so arrogant that they would think that they're right with somebody else's right? Or that they want their way when they're toe-to-toe with somebody else that wants their way. And this is where arrogance shows up. And so Paul talks about all of these things, and he details why this is a problem, where it comes from, and what the source of the issue is. And he tells them how to behave themselves. Here's what he tells them to do. So you remember this. Here's what I want you to do, Paul says. Your church is messy. Here's all I need to do. I want you to agree with one another in what you say. I want you to have no divisions among you, and I want you to be perfectly united in your mind and in your thoughts. It seems utterly impossible. How can this happen? This doesn't even happen with you, with yourself, right? I mean, how many times do you even disagree with yourself about being right or being wrong? Let alone two people, let alone four people or a whole church. It seems impossible. Sometime last fall, Don Talley, he's been at our church, helps in our student ministry, maybe you know Don. He stopped into our prayer time that happens before each service. So we have a, a group of people that are invited to it. They pray 45 minutes before the service begins. And it's just up the stairs, make a left, and you'll see them around the corner. And they pray for our service. Don popped in to this little prayer time. And he said, what are y'all praying for? Tell me what you're praying for for the church. And they said, well, we're praying for unity. Our church was growing a bit, and new people from various places, and of course, this created this 
question, you know, are we one church, are we a couple churches, are we five churches? And so our prayer team had to pray for unity. This is the very thing that Paul talked about. And then God looked at the prayer team and said this, here's what he said. Well, if you want unity, then pray for it. Well, that's wise. So wise. We'll pray for unity. Of course, not all of that. But if you want unity, it comes only because of humility. Such wisdom. And it's not just God, what he not do that. Of course, he read scripture. And for Paul, unity comes with humility. And humility is the path of Jesus. Humility is the path that Jesus walked. And of course, we don't understand humility, which is why we gave a book out last week. You know, chat with somebody who was here last week. If you missed it or hop online, you can get on Amazon or the little tiny book that we handed out. It's powerful, life changing, heart transforming. Has been for a lot of people, has been for me too. And so we remember that through all of this, this path of Jesus, Paul says this, that we have the what? The mind of Christ. And so apparently, the mind of Christ is not. Friction, selfishness, ambition, jealousy, envy. The mind of Christ is something very different than that. And yet we find ourselves not only in your office, in your family, maybe on the way to school, whatever it is, we find ourselves dealing with quarreling. Quarreling comes from a very important place. So that's why I've been talking about the last four or five weeks. Now, there's one other place where Paul uses this sort of same idea, and it's a very poignant, a poetic, probably the second most quoted passage that Paul wrote ever. And it's similar to this idea, first Corinthians 2, where he says, We have the mind of Christ. He says in a different letter, letter to the church of Philippi, or the letter to the Philippians, he says this phrase, Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, in fact, say the whole thing with me. Paul says, I want you to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And if you get the news, that maybe you read the first 11 verses of chapter 2 this week. It's probably second only to 1 Corinthians 13 in terms of being one of the most poetic passages that Paul ever wrote. And most theologians believe that it was an ancient hymn that Paul reworked into his thoughts for Philippians chapter 2. That the early church sang these verses over and over and over again. And so we're just going to detour just a moment to talk about Philippians 2, how it applies, and maybe give you some very practical steps to take when it comes to living out, not being quarrelsome, Finding true humility, building it into your relationships before we move on in First Corinthians is that important. And so, in First in Philippians chapter two, what Paul does is he gives some incredibly practical advice for how to work this out in your relationships. We told you First Corinthians, he talks about the problem, why the problem is there, how you're supposed to live unified and everything. We read that passage already. And he talks about how it relates to the gospel. What's unique about Philippians chapter 2 is he gets incredibly specific about how you should act if you're living this way. To begin, 
He starts with the heart, though, and this is what he says, the very beginning of Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. He says this. It's poetic and powerful. Talks about our motivation. He says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, what Paul does here is really pretty powerful. He's asking a series of rhetorical questions that help you think and reflect about your walk with Jesus. And he wants you to answer these in your own life. He wants you to pause and stop and and give some sort of acknowledgement about where things have been in your walk with Jesus over the years. He's about to give you a therefore. He's about to say, if any of these things are true, then here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to love. But first, he wants you to know where this love comes from. And so you ought to ask yourself those questions. Let me ask them to you in a different way. Maybe you've read this passage and it just sort of bounces off of you. Do you remember carrying the weight of your sin? Do you know what that was like? I know some of you struggle with forgiveness and grace, and maybe you don't understand what happened transactionally when you surrendered your life to Jesus. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Do you remember what it's like to carry not just the, the guilt and the penalty for sin, but also the, the way the power of sin had control over you? Do you remember that? Same attitude with Jesus. 
having the same love, same love as Jesus, being one in spirit, one was in me. And as where there are many, now there are one. Where there's 12 opinions, now there's love. Where there's division, it's the love. It doesn't matter. One mind, one spirit, it's what it says. Well, this is what Paul's hope is for the church. And that's grand. And that's lofty. And that's, you know, 30,000 foot view of everything. But Paul, what I love about Paul, he gets very specific about how to live this out. Now, I know, if you've read some of 1 Corinthians, and if you're like anybody in the church that has been again, we thought, you know what, Phil said we should read, so I'm going to read. And I'm going to talk about it with people. And when I say to people after I've read it, the thing I say most often is I have no idea what Paul's saying. I have no idea what he means. It's confusing. He talks in circles. He talks like a lawyer. I have no idea. No offense to lawyers. I have no idea what he's doing. And so, it's true. Paul is hard to read. But Paul is also very easy to read. And most of our issues with Paul are not what we don't understand, but what we do understand. Let's be honest. Paul can be very direct. We don't like him when he's direct. In fact, the next verse that follows this we all understand this simply. So how would you do this? How would you make this joy complete? Here's my sense. So this is a practical relationship 101. Okay? Now if you've thought about that, that passage before, if you have any joy, if you have any peace, any grace, here's how Jesus said what Paul just said. To whom much is given, much is to be what expected, required. This is what Paul's saying. So here's how you live it out. Here's what you do. Number one, say it with me. What? Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Pretty simple, huh? In fact, here, here's the deal. With problems and many relationships, friction, difficulty, and pain, you can live it out by living out this one simple thing by, say it with me again, don't be selfish, which means we're back to kindergarten, right? And we're back to understanding that we place other people in front of ourselves. And he said it a thousand different ways. Or to be specific, that's the first one. Don't be selfish. The second is this. Say it with me. Don't try to impress others. So last week we talked about pride and how it's puffed up. And so this week, see if you can catch yourself when you give your resume. Or see if you can catch yourself when you get defensive. Or see if you can catch yourself when you're doing anything, even simple things, to try to make credibility rise on your behalf. Don't be selfish. Don't be empty and puffed up. Don't try to impress others. And then he says this. This is all, this is all direct translation from Philippians 2 and 3. Number 3, say it with me. Be humble. In other words, he says, and this is all part of the verse, say it with me. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Now be careful with this. It's a trick. Paul doesn't mean that other people are better than you. All he means is, is if you can think this way, then it will bring about the behavior that you need and that you want. That people aren't better than you. You're not better than them. But we have such an issue with equality that we never fall in that sweet spot. Understanding that I'm made in the image of God and you are made in the image of God. If you can find that sweet spot, stay there. But most of the time we find ourselves comparing in such a way that we're always jockeying for 
well, imprints in others. So Paul says, the best bet for you is to err on the other side. The best choice for me is to err on this side, and it's this. Think of others as better than you. If you stay there, the behavior that you exhibit will be exactly what Paul's describing. And then he tells us how to do it. How do I do this? Well, I don't look out only for my own interests. But what do I do? Say with me, I take an interest in others. What's everyone's favorite subject to talk about? Themselves. That's right. And we say that. We think it means everyone but us. But it's us included. And so you know this is true when you begin a conversation with somebody. If it's about you that you're talking about, it quickly is interest. Your ability to engage them in a conversation about their life means that you're doing exactly what Paul described. You are trying to take an interest in someone else. Now, you can ponder these four things. You can make a list of these four things. You could remind yourself before you go off to work that this is how you're going to interact with your co-workers. You can put it on a post-it, put it on the car, make a dashboard, you can put it on your computer screen, you can make a little screensaver and put it on your post it's the very first thing that you see when you open it up or when you look at it. Be a great thing to remind you right before you engage in anything regarding social media, wouldn't it? Or how would that change even the world of social media if you just remembered these four things? What would happen if you remembered these four things before you sat down to dinner, before you went out with a group of people? And you said, you know, here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to take an interest in other people. I'm not going to try to impress anybody. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to be humble. And immediately the nature of your relationships begin to change and shift. Insecurity ebbs away. You quit posing for other people. And when this happens, then there's a chance for love to take root and true friendships to grow beyond the superficial. And these are Paul's instructions. Right, this is a short list of what you would have told your parents, what you would have told your kids when they were going off trying to make friends. You maybe would have reworded it differently or maybe said this or said that, but that's the essence of what you're trying to communicate. This is what we want. And this is what God has called us to if we're going to live unselfishly. Paul, in this passage, says something incredibly powerful in between his practical instructions and what was probably one of the earliest Christian moves. This is the verse that's there. He says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, this is on its own, doesn't stand out as profound or maybe very unique. But as I began pondering this verse and thinking about how it applies, I found it to be incredibly powerful. So let's say it together. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now remember, this is sandwiched between his practical stuff, be humble, and this Christian hymn that we'll uh, wrap up the service with. When he says this, some very obvious and maybe not so obvious and quite subtle things become clear. There's two that I want to point out to you as we wrap up today, and this maybe will begin to transform a thing or two for you as it did for me. 
When Paul says this, what is obvious but maybe not clear, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Paul's focused in on humility, right? All through First Corinthians, he's focused in on humility. It mirrors the message of Jesus. What does Jesus say? If you want to find your life, you have to. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your must be your servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be. This seems to be, of course, the very theme of the gospel, and Paul knows this, and he talks about it over and over and over again. But for you to practice any of that, for you to live any of that out, and again, I'm a little slow, so maybe this is obvious to you. To live this out in a practical way, what's the truth? It takes at least it takes at least two people. And you you may have already put these pieces together, but this hit me like a ton of bricks over the last couple of weeks. If you want to live out the truth of the gospel, it takes somebody else alongside of you. It always takes somebody else. How do you know what humility is? Unless this next thing around. How do you know what self-sacrifice is? Unless it shows up against someone who is selfish. I'm not talking about comparing yourself to one another. I'm saying that when you and I live this out, every great truth of the gospel requires somebody else in a relationship with you to sort this out. In other words, God has put other people in your life to help you become more like Jesus. Especially the ones that irritate you the most. It's the truth. Because look what he says. This is how I said it. In your relationships with one another, it's fundamental. It, this, the truth of the gospel that you see here, it cannot be lived out in isolation. It cannot be. Even if you're a seeker trying to sort out what you think about who God is and who Jesus is, none of this stuff can be lived out. You alone decide to live a monk-type lifestyle. You can't. You can't even decide to be in community with people but emotionally closed off and independent and just superficial. You can't even do that because when you live that way, you're not living in community with other people. You have to live this out. It's true. If you're going to live this out in a practical way, it takes at least two other people, two people at least, and probably a group of people that have decided we're in this together. And it's not just what Paul says. It's like you look at First Corinthians. Like I said, every great command of Scripture requires community to be lived out. Jesus said, I give you a new command. What was Jesus' new command? He has 613 to pick from in the Old Testament. Now he needs a new one, right? What's his new command? I tell you to what? Love each other, that's not just that, as I have loved you. How do you live that out? You need somebody else. You can't do that on your own. You don't know you're selfish. Until somebody looks at you and has permission to say so, and then say, You know, you're being a little selfish. And then all manner of things like police strikes. They don't talk for three minutes or an hour or whatever. Then you come back together, tell them about that. Why would you think that? You don't even know what it's like to impress people. You don't even know you're doing it until somebody says to you after the party, you know, it just kind of seemed like you were trying to impress everyone. Ah, oh, 
course that hurts. But now you find yourself living out the truth of the gospel. Here's how Proverbs says it. The very same thing. As iron sharpens iron, same with you. So one person sharpens another. It's a little bit violent, isn't it? It's always a little bit violent when iron clashes with iron. And when this happens, involves something getting lost in the mix, something getting shaved away, some sort of holy sandpaper. Come on, be honest. How many of you have somebody in your life that's a little bit of a holy sandpaper, right? And you want to leave them in the workshop. You don't want to take them anywhere with you. Because they know you, they know your heart, they're pointing out these things that are not true. If you're married, it's often your spouse and somebody else. And when this happens in your life, it's exactly what Paul is describing. In your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so, it's true. We live this out. Now, which is be honest with each other a bit, okay? In most of our adult lives, we find ourselves relationally isolated. And we know lots of people. We have very few good friends. We have very few people that we would say they have permission to get up in my business in a very unique way. How many people do you know who would come alongside you and say, you know, it seems like that lately you've just been on a bit of a selfish bit. You know, I mean, it's all about you lately. Who would say that to you? My guess is that the list is very short. But that's the case. You and I are called to live these things out. We're called to have people in our life that can say the kinds of things to us that are described by Proverbs. Sharp iron, sharpening iron. So how does that even work? I mean, just like you instructed maybe your children, if you had your parent in kindergarten to make good friends, how does it work? Most of the adults I know don't know how to make good friendships. So I'm going to give you three minutes on that. You ready? Very simple. Make a list of five people that you want to get to know. Five people that you think you can get along with, that you would really spend time with. Make a list. You can say, well, I know some people. No, that's not what I said. I know some people. I said make a list. If you want to do this, if you want to have some friends, if you want to live out the basic truths of the gospel, here's how you can do it. Make a list of five people that you think the relationship can get to a place where they can say to you, you're going to be in a bit of a jerk lately. Make that list. And then, and this is where it gets really complicated, really complex, go to coffee with them. Invite them to lunch. Spend a long time with them. And what you'll find out by the time, the second or third time you have coffee or spend a little time with them lunch, here's what you'll think. Well, I really don't like them at all. They're kind of weird. And here's the here's little secret. They're thinking the same thing about you. I don't know if I want that to go any further. And here's why. Everybody here, especially when you get to know them, everybody's quirky. Everybody's following. And as you get to know them, you decide to pursue them. That doesn't mean that all five are going to work out in a lifelong friendship. In fact, the truth is, as you're older than 50, you know this, throughout your lifetime, you're going to have one or two, if you're very blessed, three deep friendships that extend past the, you know, what, five, ten years beyond that. 
But just because you're 40, 450, doesn't mean you should stop sowing seed. So you remember the parable of the sower. This is exactly what it's like to build friendships and build community with people who know Jesus. Just like the parable of the sower. So you sow some seed. Some fall along the path, build friendships. And the last long, maybe some sprout up real quick and get taken away. It's the exact same analogy. But some, some friendships, and you don't know which ones until you invest. Until you sow the seed, until you spend the time, until you fertilize, until you water, some friendships will sprout into deep, rich soil, and amazing things will occur, and deep community will happen. You can't do this without sowing seed over and over and over again. So make a list of five. And if you think somebody's going to fall off that list of five, add somebody else. You should always, always, always be searching and looking for new friendships. And you may think, I have enough friendships. And that may be true today, but you might not tomorrow. And so a farmer never sows seed for the crop that he wants to harvest tomorrow. He sows seed for the crop that he wants to harvest six months from now. But in the world of friendships, that can take years. So you sow seed. When you live in community, not because you like people, because let's be honest, none of us like people all that much. But because you've been called to live in community with other people. And so, in your relationships, this truth can only be lived out in community. One more thought before we wrap up and read just a bit of Philippians. He says this. This Completely new insight for me. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who has the same mindset? In Paul's verse, who has the same mindset as Christ Jesus? Let's say me and Scott Bear are good buddies. In a relationship together, according to the verse, who has the same mindset as Christ Jesus? Me? It's, it's not that hard. You can say yes. No, no. Who else has the same mindset as Christ Jesus? Scott does. When God calls you to live in community, it means that you're in community with other people who have the same mindset. That doesn't mean you're not friends with unbelievers. That's not where it's lined up. What he's saying is, if you're going to live out this command to love, it's because you're connected deeply to other people who have the same mindset as Jesus. Let me ask you, have you ever had someone in your life who claimed to be the authority of God? Well, let me ask, in fact, raise your hands. Have you ever had somebody in your life who claimed to be God's authority in your life? Let's see your hands. Have you ever had somebody in your life that claimed to be the voice of the Holy Spirit to you? Let's see your hands. Come on, be honest. Okay. Listen close. This is exactly what Paul is warning you about. In your relationship with somebody else, you have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here's how he says it in Ephesians. Say it with me. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5. 21. If you memorize it, write it down. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with a couple 
husband and a wife. And the husband has his Bible. And nine times out of ten, if the husband brings his Bible to the meeting, I have a feeling he's going to open it up in Ephesians. And the reason he's going to open it up those two Ephesians is because there's some conflict in the marriage. And the reason there's conflict in the marriage is because the wife won't do what the husband wants. And so he opens up Ephesians chapter 5, and he reads to me in front of her, verse 22. Verse 22 is not up there, but you probably know what it says. You know what it says? Wives submit to your husbands, right? And so he articulates to me, and he thinks he's got his ace on hold because he's with the pastor. And the pastor's now going to set things straight, and then they can go to the sports car or whatever it is that he wants her to submit to, right? And so after he reads verse 5, 22, this has happened no lie, at least a half a dozen times, word for word. I ask him to read in front of his wife, verse 21. This is usually where the meeting comes apart. And I say, I don't know how you're going to live out verse 22, but I have a feeling if you live out verse 21, verse 22 will fall into place. Submit to one another. Look. If someone claims to be the spiritual authority in your life through the voice of the Holy Spirit to guide you down a certain path, go the other direction. Are you listening? It's not that they're wrong. It's that they don't have the mind of Christ. They could be exactly right, but it doesn't even matter. It's because they don't have the mind of Christ. The playing field with the cross is level. It's level for everyone. Husbands shouldn't do it to wives. Pastors shouldn't do it to churches. Bosses shouldn't do it to employees. This is exactly what Jesus has called us to. And so he says, in relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, what happens next in Philippians? When Paul begins to recite these words, that we think were probably an early Christian event. So I'm going to Josh up and I'll let you stand with me. And I'm going to read these to you. In fact, as I read these words to you, you go ahead and stand. As I read these words to you, it might be good for you just to kind of thoughtfully meditate and ponder what this love looks like. Because these descriptions of who Jesus is and how he lived are exactly what God has called us to this week. To submit to one another in this unique way. And it's not because you've been asked to do anything that Jesus hasn't done. Because the truth is, Jesus always goes first. He goes first so that you and I can go second. That's what you've been asked to do today, to go second. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And here's what Paul says. So in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Through being in very nature God did not consider equality with God. He did not consider equality with God something to be used by his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name 
that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every time they acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, Lord, we declare that this is the only love that will save us, the love of Jesus. It is the only love that will hold us together, this love of Jesus. It is the love that will teach us to place the needs of other people above our own. It is the love that will turn us into a group of people, into the body of Christ. It is the love that will soften the heart of a neighbor, hardened by the difficulties of life. It is the love that will allow us to find our significance and our identity only in the person of Christ. So, Lord, we ask that this love will hold us together.